Right, good morning. Now please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to pick up right at the middle of the chapter almost, uh, verse 27. Matthew 27 and verse 27. Every religion and ideology has its visual symbol which illustrates a significant feature of its history or beliefs, says the great evangelical teacher John Stott. Every religion and ideology has its visual symbol which illustrates a significant feature of its history or beliefs. You might think of the lotus flower, which was a symbol in ancient China and India, and now is associated, of course, with Buddhism. You could think of ancient Judaism. They avoided signs and symbols because they were afraid of any kind of visual representation, but modern Judaism has adapted uh, the Star of David as its symbol. Of course, we're all familiar with, in our context, Islam, and all across the Islamic world, the crescent moon has become the symbol of this religion. Even secular ideologies like Marxism with, with the hammer or Nazi ideology with the swastika had their symbols. But the symbol of Christianity is a cross. And it's uh, an interesting choice, isn't it? I mean, you think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many symbols that could have been appropriated uh, they could have appropriated the crib or the manger where he was born. They could have used the bread and the fish by which Jesus fed the 5,000. That could have been used as a symbol. They could have used a throne to represent Jesus' kingship and kingdom. But the early Christians chose the cross. John Stott continues, he says, The greatest and most glorious of all subjects is the cross. There is no Christianity without the cross. Others have said, you do not understand Christ until you understand His cross. And the question before us is, why? What is the significance of the cross? Why is the cross so central as a symbol of Christian belief. You think about today, crosses adorn our buildings. Right behind me, I have this symbol, the cross. Crosses are on our email signatures. <laughs> they dangle from our necks and from our ears. With all these crosses all over the place, we can tend to forget what the cross really signifies. In the first century, the cross was horrific. It was a symbol of horror, of shame, of terror. It was not something you talk about in polite company. The Roman writer Cicero says, this was the cr most cruel and most shameful punishment ever devised by human beings. He said, let no idea of the cross enter a man's thoughts or come near his body or his ears or eyes. It was difficult to even think of. And yet, we embrace it as central to our faith. Why? Well, today, on Good Friday, dear brothers and sisters, 
as churches around the world focus on the cross and the crucifixion, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to look closely at the horror of the cross. And, and as we do so, may the Lord open our eyes and our hearts afresh to behold not just the horror, but the glory of the cross, where the heart and soul of our Christian faith is found. And we're looking at the cross in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew, the gospel writer, will take us through this crucifixion in four scenes. Four scenes as Jesus, who has now been unjustly sentenced to be crucified, is led to his execution. And as we follow these scenes, Matthew will unfold for us the significance of the death of the Son of God. Scene one, the worthless king. Scene one, the worthless king. Pick it up in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The crowd has asked for Jesus to be crucified. He had an unjust trial, and now they've called for his crucifixion. They have asked for Bar Barabbas, who was a prisoner, who was a terrorist of sorts, to be released, and the governor now has condemned Jesus. Jesus has already been scourged and flogged with whips that had metal shards at the end that tore the skin and flesh off his body right down to the bone. He is a wounded and bleeding mess at this point. And now we see something that is not standard procedure in crucifixion. Now begins the mocking. It says the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion. The whole battalion or cohort of soldiers there would have been 600 soldiers. So maybe they've decided, let's, let's, let's have some fun. Let's create a spectacle here. Look at this ridiculous, pathetic man. And they begin mocking him. Now throughout uh, the text today, we'll see Matthew use irony as a major feature in his story. Uh, I've taught about this before. Uh, irony is a form of speech in which you're intentionally saying the opposite of what you mean. It's, you know, sometimes you do it unintentionally. It's like sarcasm to create a joke. It's also used as a storytelling technique. The significance of a character's words and actions is obvious to those who are reading, but it's not obvious to the characters themselves. You know, maybe you've uh, read a book or seen a movie you know, where one person is in disguise and, and talking to the other person, and uh, you know, the, the person they're talking with doesn't know that this person is in disguise, but you're watching and, and, or reading and you know, and the scene has some kind of irony and, and comedy there. Well, here we'll see Matthew use irony throughout his story, and it provides the twist in the tale. 
the twist in the story that is obvious to the readers, but not to the characters themselves. And I'm very indebted to uh, the great Bible teacher D.A. Carson for how he shows us the irony in this story. You'll see irony again and again in this text. And the first instance is right here. With this whole battalion of 600 soldiers gathered together to mock this pathetic and worthless Jew who calls himself a king. The text is constructed in a very interesting fashion here. The, there's perfect balance in how Matthew lays it out. They take Jesus in at the start, and then at the last verse, they take him out. They strip him and put on a scarlet robe to mock him as, as a false king. And then on, at the end, they take out the robe and, and dress him in his clothes again. They mock him with a crown of thorns. They fix it on his head. The thorns are probably 15 to 20 centimeters long, and they put this reed in his hand to make a joke out of him. And then on this side of it, they beat him with that reed, and they spit on him. They beat him on his head where he has this crown of thorns. And right in the center of it all, you see this, that they kneel before him, Maybe one at a time, two or three at a time. They're kneeling before him again and again and saying, Oh, hail, king of the Jews. This is mockery at its greatest. And the soldiers are delighting in what they think is irony. Oh, this guy claimed to be king, this bruised, bloody mess, this shameful fellow. What kind of a king is this pathetic fool? In fact, the irony goes one step further. In verse 37, you'll see when Jesus is hanging on the cross, they put the charge above him, the king of the Jews. And Jesus, through it all, as he is mocked, as he is spit upon, as they beat him, he is silent. Not a word when they beat him. Not a word when they spit on him. Not a word when they mock him. And the soldiers find it ironic. Yet there's another level of irony to this scene, my friends. Because you see, Jesus is the king. He is the one who rules heaven and earth. He is the Lord over this universe. He is the Lord over these soldiers. Matthew's gospel, of course, starts and ends by showing us the kingship of Jesus. The gospel begins by showing us Jesus as the son of David. The son of Abraham. It gives us the genealogy of a king. And we see the wisest men from the nations from far away come to bow down before him and give him their worship. The gospel ends with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And throughout this gospel, the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ is on display. He is the one with all authority. He is the one who has come to establish his kingdom. The ruler of all. Now being mocked by these soldiers. And you think how cruel that is. But do we realize that we too find ways to mock this king? We mock him when we disregard his rule over our lives. We mock him when we call him king, but we carry on in sin with no regard for his lordship. 
And even as we see the irony of these soldiers bending their knee in mockery, Matthew, in irony, is actually telling us what the proper response should be to the true king. The proper response is to bow down to this king in worship. Not the mocking worship of these soldiers, but true worship. Because it is in his suffering that Jesus is establishing his kingdom. Why the cross? Because the cross, more clearly than anywhere else, will reveal Jesus as king. And when we think of Jesus' kingship, we can come sometimes with wrong expectations, can't we? Oh, Jesus, you're the king. Fix my problems right now. Make everything better for me now. Give me victory over all my suffering and struggles right now. But in the silence of the suffering king, we learn that his kingdom operates differently, my friends. His kingdom and his kingship are revealed and established through suffering, through his suffering, and for those of us who follow him, through ours. So we've seen scene one, the worthless king, and now Matthew takes us to scene two, the helpless Son, the helpless son, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So they are leading Jesus out now towards this place to be crucified. And they find this man of Cyrene, whose name, ironically, is Simon. Now, Jesus had a disciple named Simon who pledged his loyalty and said, I will be with you unto death. And that Simon is nowhere to be found. And another Simon now must help the Lord carry his cross. Jesus has no strength. This, this cross weighs about 50 kilos. He can't carry it. His back is bruised and battered. And someone else must help him. Tells you, what kind of physical condition he's in. They come to the place where he's going to be crucified and they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. And he tastes it and he, can't, he won't drink it. You know, some people have said, oh, they were offering him some kind of narcotic or analgesic to ease the pain and Jesus refused because he wants to, take the, he wants to have his senses complete with you know, full consciousness to bear uh, his death. I, I'm, I'm not entirely persuaded of that. 
because I don't think these soldiers have an ounce of sympathy or pity left in them. I think this is an act of cruelty. I think they're giving him something bitter and revolting to drink. They're mocking him in his thirst by giving him something that's unfit for human consumption to torment him. And then verse 35. We come to verse 35 and it shocks and stuns our senses. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. That opening phrase is just one word in the Greek text. When they had crucified him. One scholar says, Matthew dismisses in a single word one of the most dreadful ways of dying that people have ever devised. Crucified. I can talk to you about crucifixion. I could talk to you about the great pain, the excruciating pain. That's, that's where we get the word excruciating. It comes from the word crucify. As they nailed nails through his wrists, severing the nerve, causing the hands to be paralyzed with unbelievable pain, nails through his feet. I could tell you about the struggle that victims of crucifixion faced as, uh, faced as they struggled to breathe, pulling with the arms and pushing with the feet in spasms to keep the chest cavity open just to take another breath. I could tell you of the trauma, the shock, physical shock from the loss of blood, the exposure of open wounds from the scourging to the hot sun and insects. Matthew doesn't tell us all these details. He just assumes we know. But greater than the pain, the physical pain, was the shame. Victims of crucifixion were crucified naked. His clothes have all been stripped off. And his body is torn open, bleeding in full public view, naked, hanging in public as a warning to all not to mess with Rome. I mean, you see it here, they're gambling for his clothes. Jesus is hanging helpless on the cross. The soldiers are gambling for the last things he owned, his clothes. This kind of shame was reserved for the lowest of the low classes, for the worst of the worst criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified unless Caesar directly ordered it. And think about the Jews. What a shame this was in the Jewish world. Jesus was a Jew. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, No one shall hang on all night on a tree. You shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. The Jews were terrified of crucifixion. They viewed it with great shame because of this verse. That someone who was crucified is under the curse of God. In fact, that's why the Jews, the Jewish leaders, demand Jesus' crucifixion. They are threatened by this man who is establishing a kingdom. They are threatened by his miracles, by his identity. And they want him to be crucified so that they can say to all, Look, this guy whom you're following, he's cursed. He's under the curse of God. The great shame. But Matthew and the gospel writers, all of them, they don't focus on the pain. They're not emphasizing the shame. 
Matthew just used one word here, they crucified. He wants to focus us on the surrounding people and the significance of this event. Verse 36 says, the soldiers, they sat down and kept watch over him there. They put the charge against him over his head, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Notice the soldiers are sitting and keeping guard. There's no chance of rescue. There's no chance of escape. And this ironic charge again, nailed above the cross, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then the camera begins to pan out. It pans out to show us others in this scene around the cross of Jesus. It tells us two robbers, the text says, two robbers were crucified, verse 38, with him, one on the right and one on the left. And I think robbers is a very mild term for what you see there. These are more like guerrilla fighters, rebels, insurrectionists, some translations will say. In other words, the, the, the closest connotation in modern language would be two terrorists, two guys who were convicted of terrorism, acts of terror, are crucified on his right and on his left. And you probably think their leader, Barabbas, was supposed to be crucified in the center, but Jesus has now taken his place. And then we see multiple sets of people hurl their mocking and taunts against Jesus. Verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, oh, you who would come down, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And you know, when you hear those words, if you are the son of God, it's meant to call your mind back to two other times in this gospel where those same words have been spoken. You see, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and mission, he was in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, Satan, to cast away his mission, to cast away his calling. And there in the wilderness, Satan says to him, Matthew 4, 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Matthew 4, 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And now, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the same voice of this great enemy, this tempter, Satan, is speaking through the passers-by, saying to him in mockery, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. As Jesus faces one final temptation to abandon his mission and obedience to the Father's will. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He saved, we, we, we heard all these stories of him healing this person and, and healing a blind man and raising people from the dead. Well, what's he doing now? Come on, king, we're ready to believe. I'll believe you, Jesus, if you just come down. And show me. Oh, he, he trusts in God. Where, where's his God now? Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. He, he said, I'm the son of God. Let's see what God does. Once again with those mockers, we hear our own voices, don't we? Because we test him in the same ways. I'll believe 
if he just does this or that for me. Oh Jesus, I'll follow you if you would just show me and do this. If you're real, oh Jesus, then why is my situation like this? But what Matthew wants us to see again here are the many layers of irony. A deeper layer of irony that lies behind all of this. You see, this section is filled with the language of the Old Testament. The number of Old Testament scriptures that Matthew shows us in just a few lines is actually stunning. You'll see that Jesus looks helpless as he hangs on the cross surrounded by mockers. But the fact is that he is perfectly fulfilling his father's plan. He is perfectly fulfilling the scriptures, his own perfect plan. As the soldiers spit on him, he fulfills Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As they give him this bitter drink of wine and gall, Psalm 69 verse 21 is fulfilled. They gave me poison for food. That is gall. It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. As they cast lots for his clothing, he's fulfilling Psalm 22 verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Even as he is crucified with these two terrorists, with these rebels, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 12 which says he was numbered right there in the middle. He was numbered with the transgressors. And as these people have this action before him of wagging their heads and mocking, it's in fulfillment of Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. And this quote, the same words, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him for he delights in him. So the son looks helpless as he hangs on the cross but the one who does not save himself is perfectly fulfilling his father's plans. He saved others. He cannot save himself, they say. But the irony is that he is saving others precisely by not saving himself. They say if, if he is the son of God, he should come down from the cross. But he doesn't come down from the cross precisely because he is the son of God living in perfect obedience to the father's plan. They mock him for saying that he would rebuild the temple in three days, but they don't realize that he is the true temple through which all people will have access to God. They mock his trust in God, but it is his trust in God that keeps him hanging to fulfill God's plan. He is hanging naked as one under the curse of God, but in fact, by taking this curse on himself, Jesus removes the curse from sinners like you and me. He is mocked for calling himself God's son, but it is here in this moment that Jesus is revealed most gloriously as God's son, the one who is fulfilling the plan of God from all eternity. So we've seen scene one, the worthless king, scene two, the helpless son, and Matthew takes us quickly to scene three, the forsaken one. The forsaken one. And we enter into deep mystery and darkness as we behold this scene.
Now from the sixth hour, verse 45, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. All of a sudden, in the middle of the Middle Eastern afternoon, darkness covers the land. Now, Some have said this was maybe an eclipse that occurred at the time or a storm that took place all of a sudden or something else. They try to explain it. But this is an unnatural, terrifying darkness. For the darkness represents the frown of God and the presence of God in judgment. God has already spoken of this day, Amos 8, 9. On that day, declares the Lord God. And the, the context here is the day that God is coming in judgment against His people. On that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This darkness represents the curse of God. The light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, swallowed up in darkness. But the darkness outside and around him is nothing compared to the darkness that Jesus is experiencing within him. As he cries out, verse 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, they mishear what he's saying and they mock him again. Oh, is Elijah going to rescue him? Friends, there are deep, unfathomable mysteries here. Because we are looking at, we are hearing God the Son, who from all eternity, eternity was perfectly united to the Father. The beloved Son, who's, you know, we have heard the Father's voice in Matthew's Gospel saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Son experiences forsakenness and abandonment as a man in his human nature. The one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, in his human nature is experiencing separation from God and the curse of God placed upon him. If you want to understand the weight of this curse, R.C. Sproul explains it clearly for us. Think of the blessing that we often utter, the central blessing in the Old Testament. Often we close our services with this. Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And R.C. Sproul says the way to understand God, God's curse is to take this blessing and turn it around. That's what Jesus is experiencing right now. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. The weight of sin, the weight of God's judgment, the weight of the curse which is owed to sinners and rebels like you and me, the weight of abandonment by God, all this weight is placed upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And all of that weight is expressed in these weighty words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. That's an unusual description of death. Because usually your spirit is taken from you. But here the Son of God, sovereign even in this moment, sovereign even over the moment of his death, yields his spirit. So we've seen the forsaken one. And the question before us is, why? Why the cross? Why is he forsaken? Well, friends, the answer is because he's acting as a representative and a substitute. Jesus, the Son of God, goes to the cross for your sin and my sin. He does not save himself so that he can save all who will believe in him. He is forsaken of God and abandoned so that you and I who believe would not be forsaken and abandoned in eternal punishment in hell for all eternity. Only God can pay the price for our sins. That's why Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, is the one who must die. And only a man can represent us sinners. And that's why Jesus is fully man, experiencing this as a man. He did not save himself to save all who will believe. And if you're here this morning, I want to call you, dear friends, I want to call you children. I want to call you non-Christian friend to turn from your sins and trust him today. And if you trust in Jesus, you will be free, free from sin's curse, free from God's judgment, free from death and hell forever. And we see this confirmed in scene four, scene four, the death of death, the death of death. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So Matthew here shows us the significance of what Jesus has just done. He shows us three amazing blessings that the cross accomplishes. First, the cross gives us access, verse 51. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the curtain that stood for ages separating people from God, separating people from the presence of God, not Preventing us, preventing people from having access to God. And this has been torn from top to bottom. It's an act of God to tear such a tall temple, uh, such a tall curtain. And it signifies that we have now peace with God and access through Christ Jesus. Result number two is resurrection. Resurrection. The tombs were opened. We see this strange incident in, in verses 52 and 53. 
that all of a sudden the tombs were open and all of the old saints, many people of God from the Old Testament were raised, bodily raised. In fulfillment again of the scriptures, Ezekiel 37, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. This is a vindication, a confirmation that Jesus is the Lord. He is God himself. And this is a promise. Because this resurrection points forward to the fact that in three days, Jesus will rise. Defeating death and sin forever. And it's a promise and a foreshadowing of what will take place for all of us who have trusted in the glorious cross. All of us who have put our faith in Christ. Death is not the end, my friends. Because one day, this sovereign Savior and King will call you out of the grave by name. And out you will come. Perfected in glory. Result number three is faith. Because those who were mocking and keeping watch now look at Jesus in all his glory on the cross, in his death, and say, truly this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. Jesus' death brings people to faith. And Jesus is seen as the Son of God most clearly in his passion and death. That's what Matthew wants us to know. You know several uh, years ago here in Abu Dhabi, I've, I've had the privilege multiple times of going to talk with university students in a kind of open forum. Several of them come and they ask me about what Christians believe. And there's always friends, non-Christian friends, Muslim friends there who ask different questions and I remember dialoguing with one of these friends. And, uh, you know, his name was ironically Isa. And he uh, asked the usual questions. Your first question, is Jesus God? Second question, is Jesus the Son of God? How can he be God and the Son of God? I tried to show him from the Bible. And then he waited. We went on for about an hour and a half and, you know, answered a bunch of different questions. And then all of a sudden, Isa, I think, has been thinking about this. He said, okay, I have one more question. If Jesus really is who you say he is, if he is God, if he is the son of God, why would God die such a shameful death on the cross as you say? And I said, Isa, let me tell you why. Because in the cross we see Jesus in his kingship at its fullest. We see Jesus as the son of God in all his glory. And in the cross, we see Jesus in his power to save sinners who will turn away from their sin and trust in him. And that call is to us this morning. I close with the words of a great reformer. In the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. May we too say truly, this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we hope in this cross and be delivered from death. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.